0: You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. I've got a trivia question for you as we start our time in God's Word this morning. What does a rock musician, a race car driver, a law professor, a firefighter, and a handbag have in common? Me. Because you see, if you Google my name, I share a name with all those people, evidently. That's what comes up when you Google J Messenger. Now, I can handle being associated with the others, but a handbag? There's actually a J Messenger handbag. That's a little disturbing. I'm not sure how I feel about that. But that's what happens if you query my name on Google. And the same would be true, I'm sure, for you. If we queried your name, all sorts of things would come up, people who you share a name with. So if we were to query God's word together, what do you and I share with him? What would it tell us? Well, we started down this road last week, if you were with us, when Gabe Myers took us through the last part of Genesis chapter one, where we look at the reality and embrace and understand the reality that we share God's image with him. We are made in the image of God. We are made in the likeness of God. Man, that's great. What in the world does that mean? And we started to explain and understand some of that together last week. But being made in the image of God is, 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 this is some of what this means. It means that we have the ability to think We can rationalize. We can choose. God creates. So can we. We can appreciate beauty. God has emotions. We have emotions. And when He originally created us, we were perfectly innocent. We were righteous. We are holy. All of that is part of what it means to be made in God's likeness, made in His image. But there's more we reflect the image of God, the likeness of God, in ways that some of us may not fully appreciate or even understand, but we're going to continue to expand what it means to be made in the likeness and image of God as we now start into Genesis chapter 2. So I'm going to read these first 15 verses to you, and I'd like you to watch for, as I read these to you, How else do we reflect the likeness and image of God with what these verses tell us? So if you have a Bible on your phone or your uh, tablet or whatever electronic device you use to get there or hardcover Bible, whatever, go ahead and get there. Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 through 15 and I'll read this to you as you do. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested. From all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And now, at this point in Genesis chapter 2, we're kind of doing a rerun of. Genesis 1. It's kind of a thematic explanation of some of the things we saw in Genesis 1. So here we go. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pajan, it winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, aromatic, resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, it winds through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, it runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So let's circle back to the beginning of this passage and begin to work our way through it. It says that as God was completing his acts of creation, there was something missing. There was no one to work the ground. He wasn't yet done creating. This was a problem. There was something that he chose to do about it. And so he sa- it says here that what he did about was he formed man. Now I want you to appreciate with me that so far as we've read through Genesis 1 and the beginning of 2, that God has spoken everything into existence. He spoke the stars into existence, the sun, the moon, plant life, animal life. But when it comes to humanity, when it comes to human beings, when it comes specifically here to man, to Adam, what does he do? He gets his hands dirty, so to speak, if God had hands. But it says he forms Adam doesn't speak him into existence, he forms him. And this is very significant because this word here in the original language is a word that's used to describe this. When a potter makes a pot out of clay, that doesn't just happen. The potter gets his hands dirty, but even more than that, he fashions a pot or a jar with care and concern and purpose and intentionality and artistic beauty It doesn't just happen. And so when it says that God formed man, when he formed Adam, when he created us, he did so with care and concern and love and intentionality and purpose, and he did all that on purpose because there is a special relationship there. And it says that he gave the breath of life and made man a a living being. Well, that same word living being is also to describe the life that animals have. Does that mean that animals and people are exactly the same? Of course not. We're made in the image of God. That in part is what differentiates us from animals. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, let's continue on here. It says that God placed Adam in a garden in the east, in Eden rather. That word Eden means bliss. It means delight. It also means paradise. Now let's go there for a minute. I want you to imagine a place, I want you to envision a place you've been or you'd like to go that you would consider paradise. Where is that? Honestly, with the frame of reference I have at this point in my life, I'd say Hawaii. Man, that is, that is paradise to me. I mean, the, the, it's lush and tropical and green and beautiful and you don't just look at the water, you can actually swim in it, right? And not get hypothermia. Do you know what we call people who go to the Oregon coast and swim? Tourists. Yeah, <laughs> and they're visitors. They don't know any better. But actually, between you and me, we, they're actually probably natives. They're probably Oregonians because they're tough. We don't care if the water's hypothermic. We'll swim in it anyway. It's what we got at the ocean, right? But the point being, water that's warm that you can get in and not get hypothermia in, that you could stay in all day, where you can snorkel and see all these tropical fish and see this huge sea turtle materialize out of the water in front of you, and you're thinking, I hope that thing's not carnivorous because, you know, he's real close. And they're not, thankfully. But it's just, it's wonderful. If I could take you and everything that keeps you here in East County and transplant us to Hawaii to move our church there, I'm there. That could work. I would do that if I could take you with me. Hawaii is paradise to me, but it doesn't matter if it's Hawaii. What is paradise to you? And then you begin to get an understanding of how incredible this garden was. I think sometimes in our vernacular, in our frame of reference, we read past this and we go, garden, oh, that's nice, you know, there's some corn growing here and tomatoes there. No, it's more than that. This is paradise, and this is where God puts Adam. How, how cool is that? It's very cool. And we see that there's this tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we're going to get back to next week when we progress further into this passage. But this is a profoundly beautiful picture. And what's so interesting to me is there's so many things here. All of this really is pure. And undistorted and unblemished, it's the way God always intended it to be. For example, it says that he planted the garden in the east, and there's some scholars who think that's really, that's talking about direction, that there was this beautiful garden in Eden that's being described as was in the eastern part of that. It really doesn't matter, but what does matter is this. As we get later into Genesis, you're going to see that east is not a good direction to go. When God's people go east, things will go south, quickly. And we will see that as we progress through Genesis. But here is east as a direction that is good and pure and unblemished and and wonderful. And that's the whole idea here. Everything is the way God intended it to be and it's wonderful. It is paradise. It's where you and I would love to be. But look how else this is described as. There's water here. And some of us might go, oh yeah, great. So, no, hold on a minute. The near east is an arid dry part of the world. And where there is water, there is life. There is vitality. And that's the whole idea here. There's not just some water here. There's a lot of water here. In fact, there's four rivers that flow out of Eden. The Pishon and the Gihon, which no longer exist evidently, we're not sure where they were. When Moses wrote this, as God led and directed him to, when he gave this to the people before they entered the promised land, evidently they knew where these rivers were, but, but, but we don't. But the Tigris and Euphrates, we know where they're at. That's modern day Iraq. We know exactly where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are. So here's a question for you. Are these the same rivers that existed before the flood that happened in Genesis 6 through 9? Or do the Tigris and Euphrates rivers we have today not really appear in the same place they were when they were flowing from the Garden of Eden? We don't know, but these are great questions. And just as a little sidebar here, when we have our discussion forum later this next month on was the flood a universal flood? Did it cover the whole world or not? This is the kind of stuff we'll, we'll wrestle with. But what matters is that this place is beautiful and this idea of this garden picks up on this idea and reality of the presence of God, God wanting to be with people, and designing us to be with Him. dwelling with them, in proximity to Him, close to Him. This same idea, in reality will be picked up later on in the Old Testament when we have the tabernacle, which was where the people could go to get close to the presence of, of God. That's the whole idea here. This is kind of like a garden temple a garden tabernacle where God is, right there in the middle of the people. But it's not just a picture of the past. Do you realize this is a picture of our future? Because what is going to happen when Jesus comes back a second time? He's going to complete God's plan of redemption, of restoring everything to the way he always intended it to be, the restoration of shalom, as we understand This is a picture of what's coming our way. Do you realize that? Or to put it another way, some of you do this, not all of us, but some of you do this. When you get a good book and you just can't wait to see how it ends, what do you do? You skip to the end and you leave the the last chapter of the book, right? So let's cheat a little bit and let's go to the very end of the Bible and I want you to see. And remind you, for those of you who know this, what it tells us. Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 21. Last chapters of the book of Revelation in the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. For those of us who know and love Jesus, when we experience physical death, we go to be immediately into the presence of God in heaven. But that's not how human history is going to come to an end. Understand that we don't die someday and go to be with Jesus in heaven because ultimately he will come here and God will bring heaven on earth. This is going to be heaven. This is where we're going to be. God's going to completely remake the earth and restore it to the Garden of Eden, to what he always intended it to be. It goes on to say, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. What does this sound like? the garden, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Sign me up, bring it. But there's more. Revelation 22, the final chapter of the Bible. Then the angels showed me, what? The river of the water of life. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the river stood what? The tree of life. Here is this tree again. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Does this sound at all like a garden you know about? Yeah. We will... And have started human history in the garden, and we will end human history in a garden. And it will be absolutely unbelievable. And evidently, there will be food to eat. There's fruit on those trees. Who's going to pick it? Is it magical fruit? You know, it drops to the ground and levitates over to us and enters our mind. You know, who knows? But probably not. Probably not. Because if things are restored to the way they were always intended to be, what's Adam doing in the garden? How did we end the passage? Working. He is working and taking care of it. Hmm. Why is that? Is it because God doesn't want to do the work himself? I'm pretty tired after six days of speaking everything into being, so, you know, I'm going to create someone to do the work for me. Is that why he puts man in the garden? Because he doesn't want to do the work himself? And the answer is yes. If you believe the creation myths of the other Near Eastern peoples, this is how their stories go about their gods that the gods created humanity to do work that they themselves did not want to do. That is the purpose of humanity. Babylonian creation myth in particular talks about that. But is that true for what biblical reality is here? No. God did not create man and put him in the garden to work because he was tired of doing the work himself. And he didn't do it because he was too busy because God's you know, doing other things, he doesn't have time to do stuff like that. Not at all. Well, maybe he put man in the garden, maybe he put Adam in the garden to work the garden because if he has too much time on his hands, we know what's going to happen there. We see this all the time. What happens when dudes have too much time on their hands? This happens. What's wrong with that picture? And I know what some of you ladies are thinking. I will kill him. When I come home, I will kill him. Oh, what about this? Is that really art? I mean, it is a bunch of toilet seats, and, but is it art? Dude, maybe a little too much time on his hands. This guy definitely has too much time on his hands. Really? I mean, come on. And the answer is no. God did not place man in the garden and give him something to do because he didn't want him to have too much time on his hands because things would go south. Principally, God created us for this, for relationship. Christianity is the only major worldview that teaches that our purpose in life, our main purpose in life is to have right relationship with God. God created us for relationship, to be with us. And God created Adam and placed him in the garden to work not because he wanted Adam to do work he didn't want to do and not because he was afraid Adam would have too much time on his hands and we know what would happen if he didn't have, you know, something to do. He put God, he, rather he put Adam in the garden to be with him, to enjoy him, but also to give him purpose and focus and, and community. That's why he put him in the garden. And, and we get this. All of us need community on some level. All of us need relationship with other people. It's one of the reasons we emphasize community groups here at Grace is hopefully you can get into a group, a smaller community where you can know and be known and, and grow and become more like Christ. And that's why we beat that drum so often is that is a way, it's not the only way, but it is a way for you to find community here in this, in this church family. But he also puts Adam in the garden because he wants him to do something with the resources Adam has. He expects him to do something with what he's given him. And boy, is this important for us to know. God does something with the resources he has and he expects us to do the same. Or to take that a step further, the time that I have, the stuff that I have, the resources that I have are not mine, not exclusively, although sometimes I treat them like that. God has given me those things to use them for him and to be a blessing to other people. How often are we quick to thank God for the blessings he's given us but to pass over the reality that God blesses us not just to bless us but also so we can be a blessing to others? And a number of you get this. You do. You are a blessing to others. You serve others with your time and your money and your resources and you extend and offer relationships. And you serve others. And when you do that, you are reflecting the image of God because God does the exact same thing. On the other side of that, there's going to come a season for those of you who are newer to grace where your language is going to change and instead of this being the church, you're going to talk about it as my church. And when you begin to talk about this as my church, then for it to truly be your church you need to steward the resources God's given you to be a blessing to others. Meaning, unapologetically, we will ask you to roll up your sleeves and join the rest of us in serving the community and serving one another. We will ask you to give consistently and generously to the mission and vision here so that we can continue to serve others the way Christ has served us. And we're always looking to maximize our resources for maximum impact for the Lord and to bless other people. So how are you doing with that? How are you doing using what God has given you to bless other people and not just to make life all about you? We're constantly seeking ways to do that here as a church family, how do we take what God has given us and use it and maximize it to be a blessing to other people? And I'll give you a tangible here, and this is by way of information as well because we want you in the loop on on what's going on. As you know, our Terry McCurley, who has been our children's ministry leader for the last five years, is, I'm gonna be stepping down from that role at the end of the calendar year here because she and her husband, Philip, are being called back out to the global missions field. And, And we love Terry. She's done a wonderful job, and we will miss her. But what we're going to be doing is instead of searching for a new children's ministry leader, we're going to consolidate the outreach and children's ministry department to maximize our resources. For those of you who may not know, Rhonda Patrick, our current outreach ministry leader, was our children's ministry leader before before Terry. She's going to reassume leadership of, of children's ministry. And then what we're going to do is tier the department. And so we're going to develop a 30 hour a week children's ministry outreach assistant role where this person is gonna help lead some of those teams and serve alongside Rhonda and help administratively and then we'll have some folks who will step in and help with our Journey Kids program and our overall journey. And those hours there you see for those roles are averaged throughout the year. Those don't run all year, those run during the school year and it's actually more hours than that. But the bottom line is by consolidating these two departments and doing this reorg, we're gonna save thousands of dollars a year over what's already currently in the budget to make this happen. This won't cost us any additional money. It's actually gonna save us quite a bit of money and we're hoping and expecting to make us even more effective with the resources God has has given us because work is not a four-letter word, although sometimes it feels like it, if we can be honest. And Gabe stirred into this last week. Sometimes life feels like a grind You know, with your vocation, whatever that is, you get up and you go to a job, and some of you go to a job, frankly, you don't like and you wish you could get out of, or at the very least, you feel like you're spinning your wheels, and man, let's call a horse a horse. It is hard to give that your best and to to work. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because God placed Adam in that garden not just to give him purpose, but also for that to be an act of worship. How you and I work is every bit an act of worship as is what you do here every Sunday morning, when you're in corporate worship. The attitude you bring, showing up early and leaving leaving late, um, not taking corners or shortcuts, doing your best even when you don't feel like it, showing up even when you don't feel like that all that practically tangibly is an expression of worship. With, with how you and I do our work. We bring God to work, and we bring our work to God. How do you really do that? Well, on our website, we have this archived sermon series called Work and Worship, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that because we're going to do a flyby of this because we've already really covered that pretty comprehensively. But work isn't a four-letter word. When you and I are working, we are actually imaging God, because God works. In fact, sometimes we think that God did nothing when he came to the seventh day, and that's not true at all. And actually, work becomes worship when it is connected to what God did, and that's rest. Let me explain myself. It says that God finished the work he had been doing and he rested from all his work. That does not mean that he did nothing. It means that his creative work was done. But scripture tells us that God is still working to this day. Psalm 145, John 517, where Jesus himself said, the Father is still working to this day, and by the way, so am I. In Colossians 1, it says that, that the Lord is literally holding the universe together. The laws of physics, everything that is happening and in motion, God God is sustaining and maintaining and redeeming all that. But a piece of what it means here when God rested from his work is that he savored it. He was satisfied. And he enjoyed it. And he appreciated it. Every summer, I have this to-do list of projects That i have to do and every summer there's at least one project that makes that list that i really don't want to do i just i just dread it to be quite honest with you because i know it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort and those are always in short supply especially time and so i just it's one of those things always where i just i really don't want to do it and one of those things for me this summer was staining my deck We have a deck that we continue to limp along because we don't want to replace it until we absolutely have to. It's weathered a lot and it's old and um, the time is coming when it's gonna have to be replaced but I knew I needed to to, um, re-sand it and uh, re-stain it this summer. Did not want to do that, but, but did it. And I did something in my own growth here in what we're talking about that I don't usually do and that is the other day I stepped out on that deck and I stopped for a minute, and I looked, and it looked good <laughs> because it was done. But it looked good, and now it's ready for the winner. And then I noticed out of the corner of my eye, oh, I didn't do that part. There's some deck I missed. Ordinarily, my focus would go to that. Okay, so when am I going to get that done? But instead... I thought about this passage, quite honestly, because I knew we'd be talking about it. And I thought, what did the Lord do when he was done with his work? He savored it. He was satisfied with it. He enjoyed it. And I chose to do the same. Because in this broken world we live in, yes, there's a reality that our work is never done. If you have a to-do list, you do one thing and five more things have appeared in its place. Or if you have sticky notes like we do, when you take one sticky note off the counter, there are four more that, that, that take its place. It seems like your work is never done and in fairness, that, that can be true. But is it possible to find rest, to find satisfaction, to find peace in the midst of your work? And there is. In fact, God promises that to his people. If we fast forward to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this. Catch the connection here, by the way, to Genesis, what we just looked at. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Now some context here to what he's referring to is he's talking about the Jewish nation and the years that they wandered in the desert because they would not enter the land because they did not want to enter the land under God's terms. And God's terms were to trust and obey him. And they weren't willing to do that and therefore they wandered and wandered and wandered and never found rest. The rest in part, that was being talked about here was this land that God had promised to them was gonna be a land where they could rest. No longer wandering, no longer looking and trying to survive on manna and whatever that, that God graciously provided them, but this would be a good land flowing proverbially with milk and honey and would be a place where they would be safe from their enemies and they'd be able to call home and they'd be able to set down roots and they'd no longer have to wander and it was the land that God had always promised to them and they didn't get to have it, many of them, because they wouldn't trust and obey him. And now we're beginning to put our finger on some of the rest that God promises us, even in a world where there's always a sea of sticky notes and a to-do list that never gets done. And that is, there is a rest that you will find in no other way and in no other place except through a right relationship with Jesus Christ by making him the Lord and Savior of your life because a huge component of God putting Adam in that garden was work, but it was also worship and it was actually also rest, being able to find satisfaction and peace because that's what, God, that's what God wants for us. And some of you are wandering spiritually, you are struggling spiritually and quite frankly, you are not experiencing the rest God has for you because at the end of the day, you're not willing to trust and obey him. And some of you might say, well, I'm not sure I believe that. You just put your finger on the problem. If you want to find rest, the way it's being described here in part, it comes from being willing to trust and obey God even when it seems crazy what he's asking you to do, even when it doesn't make sense what he's asking you to do. And then when we get our hands around that, we begin to understand passages like this that is familiar to many of you. Out of the Old Testament, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. One person put it like this as they were thinking about this passage and this reality of what it means to image God the way we've been talking about this. And as our worship team comes, we'll wrap up with this. It says this, sometimes our shepherd steps into our situation and he forces us to rest. Your green pasture might actually be a white-sheeted hospital bed. Many folks who live at a maddening pace have said they could not rest until the shepherd taught them to do so. But God gives us much more than physical rest. He provides rest for our spirits. The book of Hebrews, the passage we just read, tells us that one of the things God wants to do for his own is to give us rest. When you come to trust Christ completely, then you will act on God's promises and respond to his command. Life is simplified when you have only one person to please and one master to serve. Living by faith in the shepherd gives you rest for your spirit. It is quite possible for us because of unbelief to be in the midst of green pastures and to not recognize them. We see the circumstances into which our shepherd has led us, but we fail to see them from his vantage point. And catch this last part. When our eyes are on the dirt, we fail to see the green grass growing there for our benefit. When you pursue relationship with God and others, when you and I Invest and manage and steward what he's given us when we work and yes even when we rest we make him visible so how will you make him visible this week let me pray his blessing over each of you Lord we thank you that you are the God who has created us in your image and so much of our growth and development isn't growing into someone we're hoping to become it's living out who you've already made us to be because we are made in your image we are made in your likeness so would you continue to chip away and reveal and expose the brokenness in our hearts not so we can be ashamed and feel guilty but so that we can choose to turn away from that and to trust and obey you and believe you for what you promise us thank you lord that you are here with us and you want us to live out the image that you have created us in. So help us to do that through the power of your spirit, because you are a great God. And we worship you now in spirit and truth and in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And he is the great I am. We have our prayer teams off to the side here. We've talked about relationships, stewardship, work, rest. That's pretty comprehensive. And we would love to pray for you for any aspect of that or whatever you need prayer for this morning. You're not, you're not in this alone. And we want to walk with you. And I'd like to end our time, since we've been singing about the Great I Am, giving you just a portion of why he is great and how he is great. This is Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever every day i will praise you and extol your name forever and ever great is the lord and most worthy of praise his greatness no one can fathom one generation commends your works to another they tell of your mighty acts they speak of your glorious splendor of your majesty and i will meditate on your wonderful works they tell of the power of your awesome works and i will proclaim your great deeds they celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness the lord is gracious gracious and compassionate he is slow to anger and he is rich in love And so, God, because of those realities, we go from here and ask that through the power of your spirit, you would help us to live out our likeness with you. Help us to live out that we are your image. Make that image more and more clear as we choose to trust and obey you and love you and follow you. And we thank you that you are great and you are good. And we continue to seek you together. In Jesus' name. And God's people said? Amen. Amen. God bless you. We hope to see you back next week.